Welcome to the Living Rock Podcast. We're so glad that you're joining us to listen to this message. Whoever you are and wherever you're listening from, we trust that you'll be equipped, envisioned and encouraged as you listen today. of introduction, I want to say that um, for some, this, this subject is uh, it's, uh, emotive, it's important to them, and it, it raises emotions. For some people, it's a little confusing when they read the scriptures, what, what happens to Israel. Um, for some, and lots of people, it's not even on your radar, and that's fine. Um, but it's something that we're going to talk about because the Apostle Paul said it's something that we mustn't be ignorant about. So it's important for us to know what the scripture says, and also because it will be part of uh, future events. So we talked last autumn, uh, we did some teaching on eschatology and talked about the return of the Lord and some aspects of that, and this is part and parcel of that. And some of the questions that arise that I've heard over the years are, if Israel were God's people in the Old Testament, what are they now? Um, If God made covenant promises to Israel, what became of the promises? You know, did he break his promises? Did he fulfill his promises? Did they, some of them remain unfulfilled, some fulfilled? And sometimes people say, does God have one people or two? And um, in all these things, it's our heart to bring clarity and to bring some security to the body so that we know what we believe um, and there's not confusion Uh, which only distracts us from the purposes of God. Amen? Amen. So that's my aim this morning, and I couldn't do that without the Holy Spirit. None of us can minister without the Holy Spirit. We just come under his tutelage, and we ask him to speak through us. So we say no more and no less than he wants us to say. What I'd like to do just in, in starting is just to give you five principles that I think will equip you in looking at all things eschatological, so end time stuff. These five principles, I think, will help you. So if you've got notepaper, please write them down. And the first one is this, and this is my number one rule. And that is, in terms of how we approach these things, is that Christ is always central. And I want to read you a scripture from the message. I'm going to start with a scripture from the message and end with a scripture from the message today. Sometimes the message is just fantastic, isn't it, encapsulating something. And this is one of those occasions from Ephesians 1, 20 to 23. Ephesians 1, 20 to 23, the message says this about Jesus. God raised him from death and set him on a throne in deep heaven, in charge of running the universe. Everything from galaxies and gov- to governments, no name and no power exempt from his rule. And not just for the time being, but forever. Fantastic. He is in charge of it all, has the final word on everything. At the center of all this, Christ rules the church. The church you see is not peripheral to the world, but the world is peripheral to the church. The church is Christ's body in which he speaks and acts, by which he fills everything with his presence. So that puts everything in the proper perspective, that Christ is at the center of all history And Christ is at the center of his church. So we're at the center of everything. We are his body. We carry his fullness. And we are the ones he's chosen to carry out 
the rest of his plan here on earth, to see his kingdom come in its fullness. So the litmus test I always apply to any doctrine is to say, is Christ and his church, his body, at the center? If it's not at the center, but other things become central, then we have to question whether those things are good for us or not, and whether our focus is in the right place. So that's the first thing. We mustn't let anything like this become a distraction to us. Second thing is this. Keep an eternal perspective. Keep an eternal perspective. And we're always talking about the purposes of God, the eternal purposes of God, as they span the arc of history. And folks, we need to be eternally minded. It's easy to get stuck in the long grass where you are in history. And men and women throughout history have done the same thing. They've interpreted what they see in the word from where they are at that point in history. The word itself spans 1,500 years of written history, and it's speaking into many different cultures, but it comes from an eternal perspective. So we have to always say, whatever we believe, how does it fit into God's eternal plan? And it's a healthy way for us to approach these things. Don't get sucked into the detail, and don't get stuck down the rabbit hole, because it'll lead you on paths that are just not good for you. The third thing is this. Use the Bible as your commentary. Use the Bible as your commentary. The best commentary on the Bible, it's the Bible. It's not books about the Bible. Sometimes it's easier to read what someone else has written about the Bible than just to get into the Word yourself. And if anyone is struggling to get into the Word, come and talk to us. Because it's our heart for you to be digging in the Word and be fed, fully fed, from the Word. And we can help you if that's something that you struggle with. There's an old adage which is, The New Testament is in the Old Testament concealed, and the Old Testament is in the New Testament revealed. It's a fantastic little saying, isn't it? The Old Testament is revealed through the New Testament. In other words, the writers of the New Testament were given a God-given interpretation of what had gone before them, and were able to interpret much of the prophetic to say this is the fulfillment of the prophetic word. So we have to use the New Testament as our lens when we look back at much of what came before, and it will help us to interpret correctly what we see and what we read. Fourth thing is this, avoid dogmatism. We mustn't be dogmatic. Having a boundary stone is not the same thing as being dogmatic. Being dogmatic says, I've come to this conclusion, and I cannot be wrong. None of us are saying that. We're always growing in our revelation. And we're not infallible. So always avoid dogmatism. And very lastly, and my favorite, is this. Keep it simple. Keep it simple. Stick with what you know, not what you don't know, or what you may may be hinted at in the scriptures. It's very easy to go off down a track. Looking at something you think may be hinted at in the scriptures rather than just focusing on what the scripture is clearly telling you. Folks, there's enough in here that God clearly tells us that to take all of our time, we don't need to go chasing things that may be hinted at and speculating about things, especially when it comes to the end times. If your theology gets so complicated that you struggle to explain it to someone, then I would put it to you that you are in danger of getting into things that you just don't understand. And I'm saying that to all of us. So we mustn't let our theology get that way. And on that note, Paul said this 
to his disciple Timothy. He said, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. Let's steward what we have. Let's not speculate about what we don't know. And that's my, that's my final tip. Stick by those five rules and you won't go far wrong. It'll help you when you're interpreting and reading the word about these things. So what I'd like to do on, on that final note is, what do we know? When it comes to this subject of the destiny of ethnic Israel, what do we know? Let's not speculate, but let's see, what does the scripture clearly tell us? And today, I've got quite a lot of scripture to read. So I hope you're ready for that. We're going to be going to a few different places in the scripture. I want the word to speak for itself. And I want the narrative of the word to build a picture for you so that we come to a natural conclusion together. What I'd like to do is to understand Israel's destiny is to start by understanding the past, understanding her past and how that fits into God's overall redemptive plan. So that's that eternal perspective that we need to keep keep when we come to these things. So we're going to start in Genesis which is always a good place to start. Genesis chapter 12. You can turn there with me. I'm going to be reading from the NIV today. Uh, no particular reason. I'm not promoting that over any other version, although it is a rather excellent version. Um, and I, I went back to a Bible, which I'm just turning through now, which I bought when I was 16. Uh, when I got saved at... Um, at a concert at De Montfort Hall. So reading through this Bible again has been really, um, uh, really interesting, reading lots of things that I've written down. It's really good to go back to an old Bible sometimes and see how things have changed for you. Um, but I want to just go to Genesis 12. We're going to read a few verses here about Abram, who, as we know, later became Abraham. In verse 1 then, The Lord had said to Abram, Leave your country, your people, and your father's household... And go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you I will curse. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram left as the Lord had told him. I'm really glad that Abram left as the Lord had told him. And he was obedient because I'm not sure where I would be if he hadn't. Um, God made a covenant with Abraham. And one of the things he promises him is numerous descendants. And one key thing he says to Abram in verse 3, he says, all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So God's made a covenant with Abraham to make him the father of many nations, to give him numerous descendants, and that ultimately through this one man, the whole earth would be blessed. That's quite a promise, isn't it? Now what I'd like to do is speed all the way through the Old Testament to the New Testament to the book of uh, the letter of 1 Corinthians and Paul's writing to the church in Corinth and in chapter 10, if you can turn with that to me, we're going to start at verse 1. I want to read something which Paul, <clears throat> this is Paul looking back now. So we've had the promise to Abram. We've got the history of the Old Testament, which I'm taking for granted, most of which you will know, as we don't have to go through all of that. 
Paul is now looking back from where he stands in history and giving us the perspective in the revelation that Paul has come to, this special revelation that God gave him about the gospel. And he says this in verse 1, For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers, that our forefathers were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. So he's talking about Israel coming out of Egypt, going through the desert, through the Red Sea, which was a picture of of baptism, a shadow of what was to come. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. That's a picture of baptism of water and spirit. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered over the desert. Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in pagan revelry. We should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. What a tragedy. We should not test the Lord as some of them did and were killed by snakes. And do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. So Paul is looking back on that saying, look, all of this has happened to God's people, but it happened as an example. And the first thing he says is, in verse 1, he says, our forefathers. So Paul is looking back, he's talking to the church, and he's saying, our forefathers. He's talking about Israel as our forefathers. And then he says, it was Christ who was leading them. Who knew? It was Christ all along who was there with them in the desert. Before his incarnation, Christ was at work in the Old Testament, leading people, guiding people to himself. The tragedy is that only a remnant was faithful in the desert. And that's a recurring theme that we'll see as we look at Israel, that there's a remnant that are faithful, but the majority were not. In fact, the writer to the Hebrews tells us that the majority were not able to enter into God's promised rest, which is, that's the picture of the promised land. The writer of the Hebrews says they weren't able to enter into that rest because they didn't trust God. It was their unbelief that stopped them. It's because they didn't trust God that they weren't able to get in. And the history of Israel is a history of rebellion, followed by obedience, followed by rebellion. But the rebellion is always rooted in mistrust. The root of the rebellion ultimately was not trusting God as we'll see, for their righteousness. Not trusting God and following him in in all things. When they stopped trusting him, that's when the trouble came, and that's when rebellion formed in their hearts. But Paul says, when they were unfaithful, they were cut off from God's favor, but these things happened as as a warning to us on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. So what Paul's saying is, look, all of these things happened, but they were leading up to this moment right now. This age that we're living in, which, where we've seen a fulfillment. In other words, Jesus has come. In other words, what happened in the Old Testament was leading up to Christ coming. Everything was looking forward, was pointing to, was longing for Jesus to come. And Paul says, guess what? He's come. Yeah. He's here. Yeah. 
the fulfillment is now upon us. That's the good news. And here's the thing, through the Old Testament, what you see is God's providential hand moving through history. And yet, if you know your Old Testament, you will know that people made their own choices. God didn't send them like robots into history just to fulfill a purpose that he'd set them. People were given a choice. They made their own choices. But God has this amazing ability. This amazing ability to work all things to his purposes despite the fact that you and I have a free will. I don't understand it. I just know that the word says it. In fact, I do understand it, not with this, but I understand it in my heart. I understand by faith that I have free will. But I also understand that all things in my life are working towards God's purposes. And God will get me to those purposes. God will get us as a people to his purposes. But we've still got to do our bit. Paul says to the, um, to the church in Philippi, he says, God works in you as you work out your salvation. It's the partnership of the two. And that's what God was doing in the Old Testament. So now we're going to go across to the book of Romans. And just to pick up this theme, Paul's theme about the Jews. Now in Romans chapter 2, Paul is, the book of Romans, which is my absolute favorite book in the Bible, by the way, is, is kind of, it's two things to me. It's a symphony that builds very slowly till it comes to a massive crescendo. But it's also, for Paul, it's like his grand presentation. This is the whole of history, folks. This is everything you need to know about the history of the world. Because it's all about God's redemptive plan. And here at the beginning, he's starting about God's righteous judgment and about all coming under that judgment. But he talks about the Jews who had been set apart from other nations, as we know, as God's covenant people. We're going to pick up in verse 25. It says this. Paul says circumcision. Obviously, the Jews were set apart, Abraham's descendants, to be circumcised and set apart for him. Has value if you observe the law. But if you break the law, you have become as though you had not been circumcised. If those who are not circumcised keep the law's requirements, will not be regarded as though they were circumcised. The one who is not circumcised physically and yet obeys the law will condemn you who, even though you have the written code and circumcision, are a lawbreaker. So Paul's saying what counts is keeping the law. It's righteousness, not whether you have the sign of circumcision. That won't save you. He goes on to say, a man is not a Jew if he is one only outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. In other words, there's something much more important here. No, a man is a Jew if he is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not by the written code. Such a man's praise is not from men, but from God. I'm going to go on to read the next few verses because they're interesting. What advantage then is there in being a Jew? He was a Jew, so he's speaking as one. Or what value is there in circumcision? Much in every way. First of all, they have been entrusted with the very words of God. The scriptures were entrusted to the Jews. What a privilege. What if some did not have faith? Well, we know some did not have faith, don't we? We've read that already. Will their lack of faithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? And here's his resounding answer, no, not at all. Just move down to verse 9 of chapter 3. 
What shall we conclude then? Are we any better? Are we any better? Not at all. We have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. Just go down to verse 21. But now, two of my favorite words in the Bible, but now, a righteousness from God apart from the law has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. It's another kind of righteousness. It doesn't come through law and law-keeping. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Now go down to chapter 4. We're going to carry on with this argument. Just pick it up a little later on in verse 2. Paul says, If in fact Abraham was justified by works, so by keeping the law, he had something to boast about. But not before God. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, when a man works, his wages are not credited to him as a gift, but as an obligation. In other words, you earn something when you work. Your wages aren't a gift. I don't get a gift every month from my employer. I get the wages that I've earned. However, to the man who does not work, but trusts God, who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited to him as righteousness. Then go down to verse 13. It was not through law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. For if those who live by faith are heirs, faith has no value. Sorry, for those who live by law are heirs, faith has no value and the promise is worthless. There's no value to faith if you can earn your way into heaven, bottom line. Because law brings wrath, and there is no law where there is transgress- where there is no law, there is no transgression. Therefore, the promise comes by faith, so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are of the law, he's referring there to the Jews, those who receive the law, but also to those who are of faith of, of the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. He's writing to a Gentile audience. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. That's a quote from Genesis 22. So, when we take all those verses into account, what can we say? In other words, what do we know? What can we clearly say? The first thing is this. It says in verse 27 of chapter 2, the Jews were set apart through circumcision and they inherited the law. That's the first thing. But unfortunately, they kept breaking it. So it wasn't useful to them to attain salvation and righteousness. The law couldn't do it for them. But God's intention all along was that the circumcision that was first physical would become a spiritual circumcision. In other words, God would do something in their hearts, not just something with the outward. That was always God's intention. Israel, however, largely failed. Remember we read in 1 Corinthians 10, most of them didn't make it through the desert. Israel had largely failed because they had relied on the outward, on the physical circumcision, on the law-keeping, and everything that went 
with that. So Paul says they stood condemned alongside the Gentiles. All have come under the judgment of God. So Paul's question then is, in chapter 3, he asked us a question, verse 21. He says, did God fail in his promise to Abraham about his descendants, that they would come into the promises? And Paul's answer is a resounding no. God did not fail. He did not break faith with Israel. God is a faithful God. And that's one of the things going through this that you see is God's faithfulness. Not just to them, but to us, to all of us. God would keep his promise, Paul says, in verse 21. But he'll keep it through a righteousness that wasn't going to come by the law. It was going to come by faith. And actually, he then goes on to tell us, was the righteousness that Abraham had all along. Abraham was never justified through law, but he was always justified through faith. So it raises the question then, what was the point in the law? It's a good question. What was the point in the law? Well, we're going to come to that. But very lastly, in these few verses we've read, in verse 17, Paul says something really important. He says, He is the father of us all, Abraham. As it is written, I've made you a father of many nations. The promise to Abraham in Genesis that we read has been fulfilled through the righteousness that comes by faith. That's God's delivery of that promise to him. So if you will go with me to Galatians and chapter 3. And we're going to illuminate this a little bit more for us. Galatians, as you probably know, was written by Paul um, to the churches in Galatia. And there was an issue there which was to do with the law. That false teachers had come amongst the people and were saying, hey, all you Gentiles that have got saved, what you need to do is you've first got to come the way some of us Jews did. We came in through the law and then we came in by faith. So you need to go through physical circumcision, you need to go through law keeping and then faith. And Paul was saying, no, that's not right because those things were from an older covenant that has now been superseded with the covenant that Christ has made in his blood which supersedes those things. The law is no longer necessary in that capacity because there's now a righteousness that comes by faith and that's why in these scriptures we're reading here, Paul goes back to Abraham again. It's not about the law, it's about the righteousness that Abraham had that he planned for us all along. So what we have to see from Paul's perspective is things that we read in the Old Testament that all along God had an intention that is slowly revealed so that when we get to the age where Paul says the fulfillment of the ages has come, we see it come into clarity. In other words, this is what God had intended all along. Okay? So we're going to go to Galatians chapter 3 and verse 6. Paul says this, Consider Abraham. He believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who believe are children of Abraham. Now Jesus said, if you remember, to the Pharisees, when they were relying upon their physical heritage as descendants of Abraham, he said, look, I can raise up these stones as descendants. That's not what makes you a descendant. There's something far deeper than that that you're not seeing, and I've come to bring it to you, if you will see it. Some of the Jews accepted that, that were the beloved apostles. Some of them didn't. 
So picking up in verse 8 again, he says this. The scripture foresaw, that's really interesting, isn't it? The scripture foresaw, (laughs) I don't really understand that. The scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who have faith are blessed with Abraham, along with Abraham, the man of faith. So Paul is saying way back in Genesis 12, when God made this announcement to Abraham, he was talking about the gospel. Abraham didn't know that. He saw something, but he didn't know what it was. Well, I can't claim to know what Abraham did and didn't know, but I know that the picture became clearer when Jesus came for him and, and all that followed him, the prophets. So then we go down to verse 15 of chapter 3. He says this, Brothers and sisters, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. The scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but and to your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. Paul is really clear there, isn't he? Just so there's no avoidance of doubt here. If you go down to verse 22, but the scripture declares that the whole world is a prisoner of sin so that what was promised being given through faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Before this faith came, we were held prisoners by the law, locked up until faith should be revealed. So the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. Hallelujah. Now that faith has come. We are no longer under the supervision of the law. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Sonship isn't male, by the way. Sonship is about inheritance. Just to be clear, you could say you're all children of God and it would mean the same. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So we've got further clarity here from Paul about exactly what God was doing and what's happened. So let's just go back to, through this again say, okay, what do we know? What, do, what are we clearly told here? The first thing is this, that Scripture foresaw when the promise was made to Abraham that it would be fulfilled through the gospel. So God was looking forward to a fulfillment that would come through the gospel. And I would say in Genesis 3, when the promise of restoration of all things starts at the curse, God is looking forward again to the fulfillment when his son would come, which is the good news. It's all pointing forward. So now we come back to this issue of the law. What was the purpose of the law if it didn't save anybody? If Abraham didn't have the law but was still righteous, why did the law come? And we have our answer here in verse 24. The law was put in charge to lead us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. Some of your uh, translations may say the, the Lord was put in place as a, as a schoolmaster. Some translations say guardian. The picture here, if you go to the original language, is like a schoolteacher... But very importantly, it's a school teacher that can only get you so far. So with all respect to teachers that teach at primary level, they can't take you into secondary level. 
They can't teach you that because their job is to teach you and get you ready to go up to that. And that's what the law's job was. The law was there to say, you cannot be justified except through faith. The only way you can be justified is through him, through Christ. You cannot do it because you've got to match up to all of these standards. Try. You'll fail. And in Romans, in the, in, uh, in, going back to the book of Romans, in Romans chapter 7, there's a fantastic chapter there where Paul is talking about the person who's had a revelation of this and then can't help but sinning. And he's just trapped in the cycle of sin and condemnation. And then, thank God, we get to Romans 8, chapter 8 and verse 1, and he says, but there's no condemnation, which is what Steph said to us this morning. For those who are in Christ Jesus, we don't have to go through that inner battle anymore, but there is release through the righteousness that comes through Jesus, not trying to keep a bunch of rules. That was the purpose of the law, folks, to lead us and to say, I can do no more for you except pass you to Christ. He's the one that will give you everything you need to live this life in godliness. Then we come on to the issue of the seed. We know Abraham was a recipient of the promise, but then Paul says, to you and your seed, quoting the promise, and he says it's not many persons But actually, God was talking about one person. He hadn't named him at that point. But now we know that person is Christ. So what we can say clearly is that Christ was the one who inherited the promises made to Abraham. Christ was the recipient of those promises and the means of fulfillment. The means of fulfillment was through Abraham's descendant, Jesus. And then Paul clearly says to us, if he's inherited all the promises made to Abraham, you and I can inherit them. Why? Because we are in Christ. And that is the only way we inherit the promises of God, is to come into Christ. In other words, we come under his covering and we can inherit the the promises. We come under his canopy and we can inherit the promises. We are heirs because of him. We're not heirs because of the family we were born into. We're not heirs because of the physical heritage that we have. We are heirs because we came into Christ. The tragedy is that the core of the church was Jewish. But in very quick time, that became a minority. Because the majority of the nation had rejected Jesus. And we're now going to look at that and say, well, why was it necessary And what does it matter and what will happen down the line? The majority of Jews rejected him. But let's not forget, brothers and sisters, that the apostles did not. And that the early church was Jewish. They accepted their Messiah, even if the majority of the nation did not. In other words, we've got the remnant again. There is a recurring theme in God's people of Israel of a remnant of faithful Jews And that's why in the scriptures we've just read, Paul has said, look, not all who were descended from Abraham are of Abraham. There are some who are faithful, but there are others who are not. Okay, so we're going to go to Romans chapter 9. Some more scriptures to read. How's everybody doing? Okay? I know this is not light stuff. You've got to apply your minds. But I trust we're all keeping up. So we're going to go to Romans chapter 9, 
uh, and we're going to pick up in verse 6. I'm going to skip a few verses again. I'd love to read 9 through 11, but we just haven't got the time. So we'll do what we can. In verse 6, Paul says this. I should just say, the preceding verses in verse 3, Paul is talking about, um, he's talked about the plan of salvation. He's saying, but what about the Jews? And he raises this issue, not because he's writing to Jewish readers necessarily, but because it was a matter close to his heart. He was Jewish. They were his people. And he says something which is remarkable in verse 3. He says, I wish that I myself were cut off and cursed for the sake of my brethren. He was willing to forsake his own salvation if only they would come back to him. One other person in history I've heard say that, and that was Moses. Moses said the same thing. What a love for God's people to willing to sacrifice yourself. I couldn't say that. I love you all, but I'm not willing to sacrifice my place in heaven for you. Such is the love in this man's heart, and I believe this comes through when he's talking about his, um, his natural brethren. So in verse 6 he says, It is not as though God's word had failed. God has not broken any promises to Israel in what he's done. For not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. So now we're starting to distinguish between people who are physically descended and are Israel and those who may be but are of faith. The faith of Abraham, not the reliance on the law. We're starting to distinguish here. Nor because they are his descendants are all Abraham's children. I read that again. Not because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it is not the natural children who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. So Paul is being really clear with us again. Verse 23, what if he did make this, I'll read that again. What if he did make this, make this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory? Even us, whom he has also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. So Paul is talking about the church. He's saying, it's us now. We're called from Jews and Gentiles. As he says to the Ephesians, we are one new man, joined together in Christ. As he says in Hosea, this is verse 25, I will call them my people who are not my people. And I will call her my loved one, who is not my loved one. And it will happen that in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of Israelites Israelites, be like the sand by the sea, only the remnant will be saved. So we've got that theme of the remnant again. For the Lord will carry out his sentence on earth with speed and finality. And then just go down to uh, verse 30. What then shall we say? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it. A righteousness that is by faith. But Israel who pursued a law of righteousness has not attained it. Why not? Good question. Because they pursued it not by faith, but as it were, by works. In other words, by relying on their own efforts. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. Who's the stumbling stone? It's Christ. As it is written, see I lay in Zion a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And the one who puts trust in him 
will never be put to shame. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. Paul's saying, I want them to come to faith. But I, for I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. Since they did not know the righteousness that comes from God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Christ is the end of the law. That's what we read in Galatians. In other words, the natural conclusion is to lead you to Christ. You need him. Uh, Christ is the end of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. So what can we say from those few scriptures? Three things. First of all, Paul is clear again. God has not failed. For the promise to Abraham is fulfilled in those who belong to Christ. Those he calls Abraham's children. That's us, folks. We are children of the promise. Whatever our background, wherever we come from. Even before Christ came, the prophets had warned Israel that if they persisted in unbelief, only a remnant would be saved. There would be a believing remnant. And by Paul's time, that had happened. Paul explains why Israel failed to inherit the promise because he says they rejected the cornerstone. In other words, they sought their own righteousness instead of the righteousness that Christ offered them, which was his own. All who come to me will find rest. There is no other way to the Father except through me. So let's just go across to Romans 11, and we're going to read the last few verses here. Paul carries on his kind of argument, if you like, his discussion about what does all this mean and how it's going to play out. And he picks up this theme of the remnant in chapter 11. We're going to pick up in verse 2. Paul says this, he really hammers this point home, folks. God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. In other words, within natural Israel, there were some he knew would come to faith and some that would not. He did not reject the ones who came by faith, whether it was before the law, during the law, or after the law, because there were men and women throughout the Old Testament who had faith. They were looking forward and were justified by faith, waiting only for Christ to appear. Don't you know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah? How he appealed to God against Israel. Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars. I'm the only one left and they're trying to kill me. It's good that we don't hear the prophets say that anymore, isn't it, Andrew? And what was God's answer to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. There is a remnant, a faithful remnant amongst my people, God was saying. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. And if not by grace, then it is no longer by works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. In other words, God, um, Paul is saying here, or God is speaking through Paul and saying, look, there's still a remnant there was a remnant who'd believed in his day and formed the core of the church. But what Paul's saying, there is still a remnant to come who will come to belief, will come to faith. But they will come, really importantly, through grace. Because Paul says if they came any other way, grace would not be grace. What would the value of grace be? In other words, if they could come on their own merit, on their own heritage, through the basis of the law, what would that say of the grace of God? Go down to verse uh, 11. Again, I ask, 
Did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Paul's looking forward now. Not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. But if their transgression means riches for the world and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their fullness bring? What a thought. (laughs) Verse 15, for if their rejection of Christ is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? Verse 17, if some of the branches have been broken off and you... He's talking to us now. Though a wild olive shoot have been grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root, do not boast over those branches. If you do consider this, you do not support the root, but the root, which is Christ, supports you. You will then say, branches were broken off so that I could be grafted in. Granted, but they were broken off because of unbelief. And you stand by faith. Verse 23. And if they do not persist in unbelief. He's talking about those natural branches. We'll come back to that. If they do not persist in unbelief, they will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. After all, if you were cut out of an olive tree that is wild by nature and contrary to nature, were grafted into a cultivated olive tree. So he's talking about Gentiles being brought into Israel. How much more readily will these natural branches, the broken off natural branches of Israel, be grafted back in to their own olive tree? I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles, some translations will say fullness, has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. And then verse 30 Just as you were at one time disobedient to God, have now received mercy as a result of their disobedience, so they too now have become disobedient in order that they too may receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. For God has bound all men over to disobedience so that that, that he may have mercy on them all. It is God's heart that all men would be saved. And that is God's redemptive plan that all men would come to a knowledge of the truth. So let's pick those verses up, and the final few things we can say are this. First of all, among natural Israel, as the time that Paul is talking, there remained a remnant, a future remnant, and he says clearly that they will come through grace. The second thing is this. Part of God's plan in the, uh, the, the, the natural Israel rejecting Christ was to bring the Gentiles in. It was necessary for our salvation. But in us coming into salvation, God wants to provoke envy amongst those who had rejected him, to want to come back in, back into the fold, if you like. Paul also says in verse 15, we read, there's going to be a significant return of Jews to Christ in future. I think we can be really clear about that. There's going to be a significant turning of those who are natural Jews, ethnic Jews, back to Christ. And here's the wonderful thing. If when they rejected Christ, it meant our salvation, it meant the birth of the church, the coming of the Holy Spirit, the cross, he's saying, 
What's going to happen when they come back? It's like the prodigal son returning. God's heart was broken by the unbelief of Israel, was hurt. He loves his people. He loves all of us. He loves every single person on this planet. God's heart is not for the few, but for the many to come to him. And his arms and the doors of heaven are wide open. And they will remain wide open until God says, enough. So the picture that Paul gives us is that Israel is like an olive tree, a cultivated olive tree. And then God had to break off branches on that olive tree, those who did not believe in Christ, those who would not accept the righteousness that Jesus brought. And then he took other branches from a wild olive tree, which was those of us who weren't part of Israel, and he grafted us in. And we came in by faith, not by our physical heritage in any way. That's the church, folks. One new man in Christ Jesus. God doesn't have two peoples. He just has one. And they are in Christ. We've been grafted in by faith, not by merit. But the wonderful thing is that God is able to regraft the natural branches back in. And that's what Paul is saying here. In verse 20, is that you, David Lyon? <laughs> well, there we go. I'll take it. <laughs> I saw David looking at his phone, just checking. In verse 25, we read this. Israel's experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles comes in. That word, which we've heard a lot, is pleroma. Do you remember the word pleroma? It's fullness. It's qualitative, not quantitative. What Paul isn't saying here is there's a specific number of people who are not Jewish need to become Christians and then God says, right, we've got enough now. We've got 144,000. Now it's time to bring the Jews back in. He's not saying that. He's saying there will come a point in our history a fullness in what God is doing across the globe where he'll say, now I'm going to bring back the remnant. I'm going to do something amongst those people. Brothers and sisters, we cannot be prescriptive about how God does that. That's not important. People look to Israel and get tied up in all that. There are as many Jews living in America as the state of Israel. About six million in both places. Some estimates, more people live in America. It will happen wherever they are. There will be a significant return. And the purpose of that is that God may be glorified. So what does all this mean? Like many things, it's a mystery. God working his providential hand through history. God is faithful in everything that he does. But we started out by looking at Paul's words, which were we mustn't be conceited. We must understand God's plan for all of this. And one of the reasons why is because we mustn't look when we read the word and feel superior to those who rejected Christ or feel superior to those who failed to trust him for their righteousness. We're only here by faith. So we need to keep humble hearts. We didn't have a right to be here. You know, when we come into the presence to worship together, so often the Spirit gives me a picture of royal robes. And I feel like a pauper before the throne. But I've been clothed in royal robes. And folks, we as God's people need to have an ever-progressing revelation of our unworthiness we were paupers in the gutter 
And the king came and he picked you up and he says, I love you. And he put his finest robes upon you. And he said to us today, I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you. And whenever you come into the presence, that's what you'll hear every time. Whether your ears are open or not, that is what's being said. I love you, I love you, I love you. I've clothed you with the righteousness of my son and you are now beautiful in my sight. How wonderful is that? You see, folks, all of this demonstrates the grace of God. That none may come on their own merits, but may come by grace alone. Paul says to the Ephesians, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of God's household. We're members of the family now, folks, because of him. And the other thing which I think it demonstrates in all of this is God's restorative purposes because the scripture clearly tells us there will be a restoration and it will be to my glory it will be so that you can see my hand that even those who've rejected me I will bring a remnant back to me and I will soften their hearts and they will come in through faith as I had always intended them to I want to read you again from Romans 11 this is the message Uh, verse 30 to 32 puts it this way There was a time not so long ago when you were on the outs with God. That's you and me. But then the Jews slammed the door on him and things opened up for you. Now they are on the outs. But with the door held wide open for you, they have a way back in. That's God's restorative purposes. In one way or another, God makes sure that we all experience what it means to be outside so that he can personally open the door and welcome us back in. What a wonderful picture of the Father's heart towards every single person in the world. The restoration of Israel will happen, folks. It will not take the center stage of history. It will not be the most important thing because Jesus always takes the center stage. That's our litmus test. Remember that. What it will do is bring glory to Jesus. And that's why God has chosen to do things the way he has. I just want to to finish in prayer, but I cannot think of a better prayer than the next few verses. Because this is what Paul then bursts into. He says at the end of all this, Oh, the depth and riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counsellor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Amen. Thank you, folks. for joining us today there's so much going on at living rock church and we'd love for you to be involved search for us online and get information about upcoming events and more great teaching visit www.livingrock.church or search for us on facebook twitter and instagram